Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So the Lightning play game two tonight at Florida and Sunrise, but the Panthers will be without Sam Bennett. Suspended a game for charging Blake Coleman. Is this a big deal, Steve Burstyn? It is. I mean, anytime you lose one of your uh, top six forwards, absolutely is. Uh, you know, he hit, put that hit on, kind of came from the center of the ice just to take out Coleman. Uh, boarded him, charged him. You could have called either one on the play. Um, you know, I know Panthers fans are upset at the officiating from Saturday, Sunday night. Uh, you see a lot of them griping on social media. I didn't think the fish. I, I didn't think the officiating was great, but I thought it was consistent. Um, they kept giving out four on fours instead of power plays, and that's why the rough stuff I don't think stopped. But um, you know, anytime you lose a top six forward, it's it's a big deal. And Sam Bennett, they got into trade this year at the trade deadline from Calgary. It was a third overall pick. Uh, never really panned out the way they'd hoped in Calgary. Was a good player, not great. Uh, he's gone to Florida and been really good for them, um, and really helped solidify their top six. You know, their top two lines. So uh, they're going to have to go without him in game two, down one zero in the series, trying to you know win at least one of the first two games on home ice. I'm glad everybody agreed with us, and it was fairly obvious that uh, that was one of the better hockey games we've seen in a while. Boy, that was. Everyone's still buzzing about just how well played it was and the physicality of it and all of that. So looking forward to game two and the Lightning with a chance to take a commanding. I mean, they get they get a 2-0 lead. That's that's a pretty big hole for Florida to have to dig out of, even though home ice might not be what it used to be. But I'll tell you what, I don't know how many they had down there at Sunrise, 9,000. 9,600. 9,600. Yep. Felt, like, felt like about 19,600. Yep. Um, Many of those, I guess, figuring out what hockey is for the first time. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they just stumbled on it. But, but it was loud. And so, you know, in as much as they're not playing in empty, you know, bubblicious stadiums these days, um, home, home ice might mean something. I had a buddy who was at the game on Sunday night and said it was, uh, it was a really good crowd down there. I mean, it yeah. was, you know, and it sounded a lot bigger maybe because it's been over a year since we've had full crowds at stadiums. That's true. Um, and, you it came know, through, and, and at Amelie, I mean, there's been what forty two hundred for the the end of the regular season games, and now they're going to go up to seven thousand for the playoffs. So you're adding, you know, twenty eight hundred more people in Amelie Arena uh, for right. game three and four this week on Thursday and, and Saturday afternoon. So uh, you expect Amelie Arena to be louder and, and, and better mm-hmm. too. And you know, quite frankly, even the crowds that were there in the regular season, and, and this has kind of happened the last few years with the Lightning. It's it's fun to go to regular season games. It's great, but you're just kind of sitting there going, "When's the playoff start?" When's the, play-? and the fans are almost kind of that way too. I, I mean, know, you know, know, they cheer for goals and, and big things that happen, but it's you know, so there's sport. nothing like playoff atmosphere. I remember, I remember back in 2011 when the Lightning surprisingly made a run all the way to the Eastern Conference Finals, and I had just come to town and went to a couple regular season games beforehand, but going to that first playoff game. And how the intensity in the building just ramps up like that, like you know, we they always talk about the players how the intensity is, you know, there's just another level, and until you experience it, you don't understand it. The same in the crowd too. I mean, the crowd is just different. 
You know, it's not they're on their feet. They're excited. Every little play matters, and and uh, they react even more so. And it, it's it's fun. I mean, that's there's nothing like playoff hockey in a barn that's rocking. It, it's great. I mean, or look, even if you're, I'm sure for players too, there's nothing better than you know being in a barn that's rocking and score a goal and quiet the crowd. Right. I mean, you know, that's just as much fun as scoring in your home arena and the crowd's going nuts for you. So. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, um, and every game is heightened. It seems like every hockey game in the in the playoffs ends, is a one goal game to me, and and many of them, many of them go overtime because the teams are so evenly matched and mm-hmm. every everything is so critical that I don't know. I'm not used to seeing very many um, lopsided margins. So well, you don't see a lot of five four games, which is what you know the Lightning Panthers right. game one is. Most of the right. time, you know, you score three goals, you should win the game in the playoffs because right. it, it gets tighter and and there's less space and. The whistles are swallowed, so you, generally there's less p- uh, power plays, and mm-hmm. you know this, the lightning game was weird. So Sunday night is one you had five four on fours, so ten minutes of play, one sixth of the game was played four on four. Yeah. Then you added what four power plays for the lightning, a couple for the Panthers early, and you know you were talking a third of the game was special teams play. Yeah, I that's think there were seven total. Yeah. yeah, that's rare for the playoffs. You don't see that much. Mm-hmm. Non five on five time, so the game had a weird flow to. It. I mean, you know, Ty- Tyler Johnson had like seven minutes of action. Now, granted, he's on the fourth line; you're going to see less, but he doesn't play the special teams. He's, he plays the second power play, so he was out there a little bit. But the first power play was dominating and scoring, so second power play generally didn't get out there. He's not on the the penalty kill, so and he wasn't out there for a lot of four on four stuff. So you know, I mean, like Maroon and Joseph and Johnson's minutes were so low. It was just it was kind of a weird game in that regard because of how much specialty play you had four on four or shorthanded or penalty or you know power play time so uh i I don't expect to see as much of that in game two but you know we'll see i mean if you're the panthers you got to be going you know how rough do we want to get because if you know every time we give them a power play they either scored or were or or, or almost scored on the the one they did well yeah i mean three out of four when you've got cooch back and stamp coast that opens up the ice and he's you know such a good playmaker in there um you know it's it's a different deal now so but that is their game their game is to be physical and try to intimidate you can't take the bait i think the lightning did a good job of of control i thought the refs let them play they could have called a lot more Mm -hmm. uh roughing and things like this after whistles and all that they didn't um and yet uh you know they still managed to call you know seven different power plays in the game. So um, yeah, I, I I just I just feel like this is going to be a series that special teams are going to be so big. And, and and the way the Lightning they said in practice you could tell with Kuchback, Stamkos, the way they were moving the puck, it was going to be a different deal uh, on the power play. So you know certainly that's that's they scored what four three of their four goal three yeah, of their three five goals well one was shorthanded so four well, of the five yeah, were so four of the five yeah but i mean you know cooch scores the two power play goals and then he fakes the shot right makes the assist which mm-hmm. left Braden point wide open in the center exactly. you know i mean it's cooch and stamkos on the other side add so much to that power play I oh, mean, it's, it's you know it's i was talking to chief uh sunday night about the game and i'm like you know i i kind of wonder if and, and, and there's one thing to say, okay, this is our power play structure. This is what we, you know, the headman at the top, Cooch on the right, Stamkos on the left, point in the center. Mm. But when you're missing both Cooch and Stamkos, and you don't have those guys that teams fear shooting on the wings, can't play that way. Why did they run the same power play for the that part right. of the season? Why aren't they 
you know, create a little more movement or tailor it more to the players you had on the ice instead of trying to stay. And this is the way we run our power play. Now, it's the regular mm-hmm. season. By the time Stamkos went out, you were pretty much guaranteed of a playoff spot at that point. So maybe it was just keep practicing in our system so when they get back, we're ready for it. Mm. But you kind of wonder when if those guys are both out, hopefully it doesn't ever happen again that both are out at the same time. But, you know, you kind of wonder, do you want to change up your power play a little bit or at least the structure you run and the way you run it? Because without shooters that they fear on the wings, it's a lot easy to pack in, uh, whether it's Kalorn or Point or Sorelli or whoever's in front, it's really easy to pack it in to where there's no room to shoot. Right. And maybe they were trying to, to, to see what they had in guys that could fill those roles, mm-hmm. if they could play it that same way or not. And, um, you know, they found out, obviously, they're not as good. But anyway, it's going to be a great game, too, uh, going on in Sunrise. A little bit of news in the NFL. Uh, we had the uh, the great Peter King, who writes Football Morning in America, explaining a little bit more about why Tom Brady is heading to New England to play the Patriots in week four. Uh, which is coming off a uh, a Sunday night, or not a Sunday night game, but a Sunday afternoon game in Los Angeles against the Rams the prior week, and it seems obvious, right? Um, you know, Peter Peter writes that uh, you talk to some schedule makers with the NFL. It's really is is just practical reasons. One, uh, the later you go into the season, there's a risk. I mean, right? The the guy is 44 years old, so this is a most likely the only time in his career because, you know, these things rotate every, what, five seasons when you play a different, uh, you know, a different division outside of your conference. Um, it's probably the only time that Brady will go and play his former team, the New England Patriots, and it's at Gillette. At age 52, um, baby, he'll be back. Yeah, that's right. Eight years well, from now. It could be. Um, but barring that, um, they decided we better maximize this. And then – um, so you want to want to get it early enough in the year to to minimize the risk of injury. The other thing is, the Patriots may still be in some kind of contention. I mean, look, they're going to start the season with Cam Newton. Uh, I don't think their schedule is is overly difficult, at least in the beginning of the year. But who knows when if they make the switch to Mac Jones? But um, they they want they they think it would be obviously better, more beneficial to the viewership anyway. If if New England wasn't uh, say two and seven, so there's that. And then the, then the the last most obvious thing is. It's it's a beautiful time of the year in New England. I mean, it, it could be a little bit chilly, but it's, it's in you know very early November, I think, um, or October. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. So the leaves will be changing. All that weather. You're not going to have Brady standing in 17 inches of snow. It's not going to be one of those games where the weather is the story. You want Tom Brady to be the story. You want him going back to be the whole story, and that's what they've got. And and it was uh, even more fortuitous for NBC, who actually I was reading uh, another column where they, they made a pitch uh, sort of in a video way, but, you know, every network wanted this game and for, for obvious reasons. But the league just felt that, look, um, for this week when he goes up there, it needs to be a primetime game. So you're looking at Monday night, Thursday night, or Sunday night, and NBC convinced them they could do more around the game uh, that entire weekend, you know, to sort of uh, hype it up more and, and uh, of course, you know, now, Michaels, Chris Collinsworth are great. So that's how it ended up on NBC. And, and the ratings for the, the only thing they can compare it to, they said, was probably when Eli and Peyton Manning played against each other um, one time years ago. So that's okay. that's what yeah. sort of the, the last biggest, you know, regular season spectacle, I guess, would be I mean, when Eli and Peyton. Did Manning together. go back to Indy? You know, uh, like I don't that, believe I so. Um, I don't know that he did. I can't. I can't recall that. Um, that was not mentioned, but 
but the Eli and Peyton Manning game was. So mm-hmm. I remember seeing Archie and, you know, Cooper and all those guys up there and, you know, splitting their allegiances. But so, yeah, that was it. Um, but I'm glad I'm glad it's uh, early in the year. I'm glad that, uh, you know, it'll it'll mean something, obviously, for both teams and, you know, for the Bucks, depending on how they do. Of course, you know, Brady's dad thinks they're going to be 4-0 or 3-0 going into that game. So when, we'll see if he's right. Win, yeah, win, win, win. He said he was so confident when he went on WEI and just said, uh, you know, we're going to take care of business. So this is Sports Day Tampa Bay. I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times. I'm talking to Steve Versnick, of course. We've got your mailbag questions today. 100% uh, correct answers only. Or your money back. So let's get started. Well, we'll start with the lightning since we let off the podcast with that. And John had asked, what was more surprising, Kucherov scoring two goals with an assist last night or Stamkos hobbling to a goal against Dallas in the finals last season? Well, I mean, I think it was probably the latter, right? Because first and foremost, nobody was sure that Stamkos, even right up until game time, was going to make it on the ice. Uh, and in fact, he lasted all of a, what about two minutes and forty something seconds. I I can't recall the exact time. Um, I still, when I think about that Stamkos goal, which was relevant, by the way, um, I think it was the second goal of the game, or for the Lightning anyway. Uh, and it, I still have it, it gives me goosebumps. To the, you know, there are certain moments uh, in sports, and, and especially if you're talking about Tampa Bay sports, we, we tried to kind of rank these one night. I think uh, we talked about it with you, probably Tom Jones, but, um, you know, you have, you, you just have iconic moments, right? The Ronnie Barber interception against Philadelphia to send the Bucks to the Super Bowl. Um, Marty St. Louis goal in game six in, in um, Calgary, you know, uh, in 2004 season when they you know, came back home and won game seven. It looked like they were done out there in overtime. And so you just, you just have these moments, the Rays, uh, the Evan Longoria, you know, home run, uh, game, what, 162, mm-hmm. um, to send them to the playoffs. And, and so, uh, but that moment that Stamkos, you know, charged down, down the ice and, and, and wristed one from the boards, it seemed like, uh, a goal scorer's goal, the bench, the reaction, just the juice, that came out of that, and now, and we also knew the rest of the story. He didn't play anymore; like he, he was too hurt to really continue. But well, it was. I think at the time, I mean, being Stan, a Stanley Cup game, first of all, elevates that more than the first game of a playoffs. Agree, agree. But what we didn't know at the time is everything he was dealing with Personally, going into it. That's right. Not just on the ice, but off the ice but with off. his family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then the fact that he he tore his groin on that play. On the very play. Yeah. We didn't know that at the time. No. You know, and he makes, still got around um, um, the defender, uh, Lindell, I believe it was. Still got around him. Yeah. And, and scored the goal. And, and, but we didn't know that at the time. And then he took another shift or two and then was out. And yeah. you thought it was just whatever was a continuation. But it wasn't. It was a new injury that he had mm-hmm. that you didn't know. I mean, in hindsight, it, that one's definitely more. But I, I think in the moment it was, too. Because we all thought Kucherov would – would uh, maybe not two goals and assists, but yeah, we knew that he's a dynamic player and that he was going to make a difference in this series, right? And, and and you know, particularly I thought would help Braden Point, and I think you saw that in, in in game one, yeah. But everything Stamkos was dealing with, and and when you saw the emotion on the bench with it too, I mean, oh. that's you know, and they knew what obviously they knew what was going on. They we, knew we everything. Didn't as fans yeah. at that point, other than he wasn't playing, 
Right. Um, you know, that's that's just one of those. And, and I still go to the fact that he tore his groin on the play and continued on and still scored that goal. Yeah. Right. To me, that's it, just incredible. I mean, that obviously um, just just you know the the ability to reach deep and and play through that pain and 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 come through in that moment, but also, um, you know, for all that he was dealing with and the fact that he never played again, you know, like, and, and it was a big goal, but it it just it absolutely just you know lifted that team and and that's what you know great players come up with these moments and and you know yeah Kucherov, I mean. You're right. Do we know he would have three points? Do we know that he would score twice? No. Was was it, uh, you know, certainly a possibility? Well, he's he's on the power play, and we know how lethal he is on that. And so, you know, yeah. I mean, Kucherov, by all appearances, and the way they took their time with him getting over the hip surgery, I mean, they gave him a nice long runway. They didn't play him at all during the regular season. He's about as healthy as he can be this time of year given the injury and the surgery that he had. So, you know, you're not going into it thinking, oh, this guy's playing on one leg, you know, that sort of thing. So if if, if Kucherov is healthy, you know, stamina might be a problem, hasn't played in a while, can he take the hits, how's he going to feel, is he going to react? All that still was a question mark, but you don't question his skill and you don't question his ability to see the ice. And he showed both those things, um, particularly on the power play, you know, with the two goals and an assist. So, yeah, I think it's definitely Stamkos. Really good question, though. I love those. All right, we'll switch to the Rays now. And Michael asked, with the Rays designating Yoshi Susugo for assignment, do you think they made the wrong decision to trade Nate Lowe? Um, I, I mean, maybe they're mutually, uh, maybe they're linked, or maybe they're they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, I don't I don't know how how like him or 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 him kind of decision this was really. I don't know if one is an absolute of the other. I guess you could assume that to some degree. I will say this. They made the wrong decision with Yoshi Susugo. I mean, a lot of teams were probably trying to sign this guy who was an absolute home run hitter in Japan. Um, they paid him for the Rays. They paid him really well, some you know $7 million, whatever it was, international fees or whatever's associated with that. Um, look, he, just, he, he was never going to be a great position player. Uh, to begin with, but they did count on him uh, in his bat and hitting some home runs and being a left-handed power hitter. And for for what I saw, he simply couldn't adjust to major league pitching, in particular the velocity. I saw him get beat on fastballs more than anything else. And you know that's that that's sort of a calculus you can't make. It's a projection. Like they just don't. I mean, when you think about the major leagues now and how every team seems to have. You know, the stable of guys like Kevin Cash mentions that can come out of the bullpen or anywhere throwing, you know, mid to upper 90s. Um, it's all about velocity right now. And that's why so many guys are having a tough time hitting uh, in the major leagues. And I mean, everybody, not not just, you know, uh, players coming from other countries. But in the case of um, of Yoshi, it, it just it, it just didn't work. You know what I mean? Like they gave him plenty of at bats. Uh, he got an opportunity to play some first base, got an opportunity to be in the lineup a lot you know, with, with the injuries to G-Man Choi, and I think they saw enough. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't – that that one I, I just think that they missed. I mean, I, it just happens. I, I don't think there's – we'll see what he does. I mean, maybe a change of scenery, going out to L.A., um, another team. I don't know. Sometimes just shaking it up uh, can help you. But. Well, and, and before we say was it the, the wrong decision to trade Nate Lowe – you're going to have to wait a few years to see what the prospects they got back do. 
Now, there's some lower-level prospects that have some high upside but are high risk. I mean, you know, the three the three prospects they got may not make the majors, but they've mm-hmm. got they they've got some. There's some high ceiling guys that have a lot of potential. So let's, you know, much like the David Price trade, who got Willie Adamas back. Now, Willie was thought of as a very highly rated prospect at the time, but you still have to get him to the major leagues to see how he performs first. Right. You know, some of the Nate Lowe is going to be what they got back and how good it is, much like the Blake Snell trade. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen Luis Patino and Mejia, and, and there's a couple other players, but we'll see how they develop over the next few years, whether it was a good trade or not to trade Blake Snell. You know, time will tell on some of these trades when you're t- dealing with prospects, too. So, Yeah, and I mean... I mean, I I don't know that. Yeah, and the thing with Nate Lowe, like I, I, you know, we'll see what the prospects they get back. I don't know what he is. I don't think he's been enough in in the majors long enough, even for the Rays, to really to or or the Rangers to know what his career is going to be. Now, hopefully for him, you know, he the start that he's off to this year continues, and that's that's his career. He's going to hit twenty five to thirty home runs a year and play a great first base. Although that that was not considered the strength of his of his game either. Um, does he hit left-handers? I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of things that are yet to be discovered with him. Let's let him play a whole major league season before we decide that they made a mistake. Um, but again, I I don't know that it was Yoshi in Nate Lowe out. And and yet to your point, um, I think it's a great analogy. Obviously, Lowe is not Blake Snell, but look at the prospects that they got back for for Snell, and everybody poo pooed that immediately. I'm here to tell you some of those guys I think are going to be really good players for, for a while for the Rays, and it may just work out for them. You know, we may see San Diego in the World Series and somebody else can go get Blake Snell after five innings. You know, I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, that's Kevin Cash's albatross right now. But, um, by the way, has he worked seven? Has he worked full six innings yet since he's been in San Diego? I don't, that, that'd be worth looking up. Has he gotten through the third time of the order? Is that what you're asking? I, t- I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that he has since 2019, to be honest with you. So, yeah, but it's, it's a good question. I no, I to answer, I think my thing would be no. Um, Yoshi was a mistake. Um, I'm not ready to say that it was either or. So this year, Blake Snell's innings pitched four and two thirds, five, two thirds of an inning, five, five and a third, <laughs> five, four and two thirds, four. So he's not gotten out of the sixth inning. He has not. What five and, and I mean, a, five that, and, and a third's the most he's got? I believe that that's. I believe he has not done it since his injury in 2019. I believe that is the case now for the last almost two yeah. years. Now, granted, all of those starts except for the one when he went two thirds of an inning and got rocked. Um, all those starts had at least 85, 84 pitches or more, and he was less than that in the World Series. So he was also at a higher pitch count for these games. Yeah, look, I. I wouldn't have taken him out in the World Series. He was no. dealing, but but you know, Ana- analytics are a fantastic tool. But sometimes you just got to go. The guy's got it tonight. Yeah, I mean, there is, uh, you know, like maybe in the World Series you do that. I mean, maybe you don't do it for 162 games. You got to let the stats play themselves out. You have to honor your system in in that respect. But when you get to Game Six in the World Series, maybe you just play the hunch when when no one can hit a loud foul, a loud foul off of him, as they say. But hey, yep. that's way under the bridge. All right, bemused Tampa Bay sports fan asked, is Randy Arazarina the next B.J. Upton? Historic postseason, but can never replicate that success going forward. B.J. carried the team in the 2008 postseason. Wow. I don't know if this is a Rosarena hate or B.J. Upton hate. I think you're underselling my man B.J. Upton. 
is what my initial my initial thought was. Um, he's a pretty good player for the race for quite a while. It was it wasn't until and you were, we were talking about this for the podcast that you know he got dealt to Atlanta and he became Melvin Upton. Melvin Upton, not a good player. B.J. Upton, pretty good player. Um, Upton's best year actually, he says he carried him in '08. His best year was actually '07, the year before they got to the World Series. I mean, this dude was uh, was balling. I mean, he hit he hit 300 that year. Is there even 300 hitters on the Rays anymore? I don't know that there's even a guy bat. Maybe Joey Wendell. Uh, a couple of days ago, there wasn't. It's possible there is now. They actually hit but, over the weekend. So yeah, they did. But that year in '07, he hit 24 bombs, drove in 82. Um and batted 300, which was a great year. And then the next year, um, the year that he mentioned, of course, it was mostly the postseason that he lit it up. Um, but the next year, you know, his batting average tailed off, but just a little bit to 273. Look, I mean, if you look at his Tampa Bay years, I mean, the guy was two like a 255 hitter, which nowadays <laughs> would would be about third on the team. That's like 333 uh, back in the day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, and, and uh, the thing that surprised me for his career, B.J. Upton had 300 stolen bases. I mean, he, he could do a lot of things. Uh, and, and I thought he played a tremendous center field. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not ready to – I don't know that it's a big insult to say that Randy Orozarena is good. Now, don't – you know, B.J. Upton had a great postseason for them. He did, he did carry them. But what a Rosarena did, like, is the best ever, okay? He was breaking rookie records held by guys like, I don't know, Derek Jeter. Um, so, you know, can can any young player duplicate that? Well, no one has until until he came along last year, and he is still technically a rookie this season. And it was always going to be, right, let, let's see how he adjusts and how the, how the teams adjust to him for 162 games. Um, his strikeouts, I think, are way up than where I thought they would be. I still think he's a plus-plus outfielder. He can still he can run the bases. I think he's good in the out, uh, you know, a, a power hitter for sure. Um, but he's still learning to play in the majors. Let's give him one year before we just write him off. But look, BJ Upton. I mean, until he got to Atlanta, and he kind of faded. I mean, he had a really good career. He had a pretty good career here, didn't he? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't. I think they're expecting more maybe from a Rosarena, but only because of the way he started his, you know, his his, you know, his postseason last year and all. But ah, some BJ Upton hate, man. I don't get it. Yeah, I think it's a little early on a Rosarena, but I mean, you know, well, we forgot G Man Choice hitting seven fifty for the race this year, so we do have a well, three hundred. He is three for four. Yeah, yeah I yeah. get it. Uh, other than that, Mejia's at two ninety, Wendell's at two eighty, but a Rosarena is one of the regular players is third on the team in average. Uh, his on base percentage is three fifty four. It's not great, but it's better than most. If of the he team. cuts I mean, down on his strikeouts, yep. he'll be that's right the, now. That's that's the thing holding him back. The fifty strikeouts is is concerning. Yes, he and yeah. Adamas is forty eight, and Brendan Lau forty seven. Those guys all need to cut down on the strikeouts. And and Kevin Cash continues to bat him lead off, and I think he's doing it to try to make him look at more pitches. Mm-hmm. Um, you well, know, that's. Joe Madden used to do that and say, hey, go up there and be a leadoff guy and, and see a lot of pitches. He's also doing it, but, you know, he's second on the team and on base percentage. Well, that there you go. So, so I, mean, I mean, you know, he's got 16 on, walks as well. So, I mean, Yandy Diaz has, run. has an on-base percentage of 400, 408, right. and Rosarina's right. at 354. Yeah. I mean, and you get a guy on that can run. 
Yeah, he's four four and oh on stolen bases. But yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think he keeps batting him up. The, the strikeouts are concerning, but he gets on it's base. Not- he's I mean, he's on base more than anybody else as far as you know on base percentage outside Yandy. No one even cares about strikeouts anymore. They no. <laughs> really don't. I don't know why we even bring him up. <laughs> Seriously, if I had known the baseball, I was born way before my time because if i'd have known you could strike out and still look good doing it and it was okay i'd have been i'd have been well thought of uh, back in my you'd day you'd be in a different career we I mean, wouldn't be doing this podcast worst, oh no i i well my career would be over but i'd probably be in a booth somewhere you know calling reds games or something yeah. i mean i um i could strike out with with style i mean with <laughs> and and prolifically at that in in key situations um that was not a problem for me um, I was embarrassed when I struck out, and so it ate me alive, and I was that guy that, you know, wanted to dig a hole at home plate and crawl into it most of the time. And I never agreed with a single umpire, by the way. I had the best eye, and they were wrong most of the time. Those pitches were not strikes. But that aside, um, yeah, the game that game has changed. We're, I, we, just need, we just need to learn to accept strikeouts as, you know, an outcome of uh, – of trying, you know, that, that they're up there trying to launch balls, you know, over the fences and they're going to strike out and it's only one out, not two. You don't bounce into double plays. You don't, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of bad things that could happen when you hit the ball too. So, um, yeah, it's just not the same, but I would like to see him cut down on the strikeouts. Nobody cares. I mean, I guess I'm just got to accept that. So John, by the way, just before we get started, before we lose this, this, I tweeted out the other day, the Rays were playing, the Yankees, I think. I think it was the Yankees. Maybe it was a Mets game. Anyway, they were playing in this last homestand, and I tweeted out something about, like, you know, I'm really concerned with baseball. Like, for the first time, like, the game I love is in trouble. And and I was, you know, every team is striking out 10-plus times. Um, we've got spin rates and velocity and all this stuff that is, you know, shifts and you know, the analytics and all of this, and I just, I'm watching a game, and we're in the seventh inning, and one team has two hits, the other one has one hit, and there's 10, 10 or 12 strikeouts on both sides, and I just went, it's unwatchable. And then since that time, the Rays have been on fire. They've gotten, base, they, they've done it by by <laughs> spackling together, you know, no home runs and scored 12 runs, they, they, they hit a bunch of home runs, and scored. it's like, their offense came alive, and I look like an idiot. So, guarantee, as soon as I hit send, Everything was going to change, right? About it hasn't changed about baseball, but it did change for the Rays. And that's a perfect segue into our next question, which John asked: Is it safe to say the Rays have rediscovered hitting? If it continues, does this put them on track, at least for now, to being a playoff team this season? Why? Well, I, I mean, I think they're a playoff team, um, or should be with their talent. You know, and and you mentioned this before the podcast that every team in the American League East uh, has a winning record, which you're not going to find well, that. No, four of the five. That's the only division four, that four, oh, four teams. of the five. Baltimore is below 500. But. Baltimore, okay. Who the Rays go to play right. or are playing now? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think they're a playoff team. Look, I, I think that a couple things have happened. One, I think their pitching is starting to really figure itself out. I mean, you've had some injuries early on. You've gotten some guys back. Um, you know, some guys have come up and been, been lights out. Um, you know, Rich Hill has been tremendous. I think, uh, we'll see what Waka was going well before he had to step out. Colin McHugh's done pretty well. Colin McHugh came back and did well. I mean, they're going to get Chris Archer. I think Archer's going to end up in the bullpen, which will be interesting. I think if you asked him to come in and just let it go for an inning or two, that might end up being his role and he might be really good at it. You've gotten some closers back. I know Castillo was in and out. 
Um, but the pitching has you got to have good pitching, and the pitching has been has been carrying them. They they did go a long stretch with not scoring runs and a lot of strikeouts, as we mentioned. But my theory has always been that like if guys can do it once, and this is the thing, like they, what they did last year, they weren't the most prolific offense, but they they scored, they they got big hits at big moments, and um, you know, and, and they were in a lot of one run games, and they know how to win close games. I mean, that that's the Rays are always going to be, or most of the time, going to be in close games, and they came out on top of most of them a year ago when they went what uh, forty and twenty is that what it was, something like that. Yep. Um, and so, you know. If Meadows can hit 33 one year, he can do it again. If, um, you know, right now Joey Wendell is probably their most consistent guy. Um, but but right up and down the lineup, you're, you're getting some some good years from a few people. But overall, I mean, you just need to get what you've had from them in the past. And, you know, over 162 games, you can't look at just one month. We're not even to Memorial Day yet. And I don't think that anybody pays attention, much attention to you know, who's doing what before Memorial Day in baseball because the season's so long. So I think the Rays feel like they have the right guys. And if they don't, they'll they'll make some moves. But I think for now, you know, would they like to see them be more consistent? But what we saw this this past series against the Mets team that has pretty good pitching and had been going really well until they got here at the Trop was you saw a team that put the ball in play a lot in one game and manufactured some runs, ran the bases aggressively, um, hit with men in scoring position, and then another game they beat you with a home run, and that's sort of when the Rays are going well. Um, that's sort of what you get. It's not all or nothing. It's not like well, if they don't hit two or three home runs today, they're not going to win. It's usually a combination of that. You know, some games they 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 get the big fly, and some games they you know they just put pressure on your defense and get the hits with with men in scoring position, and that's sort of what's been missing is is that big hit. So we'll see. I mean, it's it's. You know, it's 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 baseball. I mean, baseball is a long season, but no one's hitting this year. I think the dead ball is a factor. Um, I think, you know, all these teams now embracing matchups the way the Rays have. Um, there's more analytics in a game. You, you're, you know, if you're, if you're a fastball hitter, you're not seeing fastballs. If you have struggle against left-handers, then you're going to see left-handers. If, you know, I mean, they are putting their pitchers, you know, not going three times through the lineup. I mean, Everybody's sort of doing the same thing, and, 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 and the universal thought is is that it's really, really hard to hit right now in the major leagues. Like, it's just really hard. I mean, the stuff, the, the movement on baseballs, there's a couple things, velocity being the biggest difference, but then the movement of pitches. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen, like, they show one guy throwing, like, throws, like, four different pitches, and, and they'll have his, you know, they'll have his, uh, his slow motion uh, uh, delivery interlaid with five or six different pitches. And they are moving in in six different directions: inside, outside, up, down, and literally the delivery is you know the 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 arm angle is in the slot is from the same. I don't know how you begin to hit something that's 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 getting that sort of spin and movement on it. Um, so it is hard. And if it were just the Rays, then you could say, well, they suck, and you know, go get new players. But you know. Every team is struggling to hit right now, so I, I think they got the right guys. I mean, Kevin Cash thinks they have the right guys, and you know, if they don't, then there's certainly some players tearing it up in the minor leagues. Well, speaking of the minor leagues, E. Bush asked, "Who do you expect to be called up first? Wander Franco, Taylor Walls, Vidal Brujan, or Josh Lowe?" Well, tell me who's getting hurt because I think that's that's pretty much what is going to determine it in my mind. Yeah, so Josh um, Lowe's an outfielder. 
Mm-hmm. Taylor Bru or uh, Vidal Bruhan plays second. Uh, Taylor Walls is the shortstop, and that's where Wander Franco plays as well. Now, right. the one difference between the f- four of them, and this hurts Wander, is he is not on the forty man roster. So, so the other ones in order for can't... you to call to call him up to the majors, you've got to make room on the forty man roster. Although I think there's actually thirty nine on the Rays roster right now, but mm-hmm. you'd have to potentially, if your roster was full, you might have to DFA somebody or trade yeah. somebody to make room. Or, or somebody had an injury. Yeah. Walls, Bruhan, and Lowe are all on the 40-man the, the based on their years of experience and the minors and that. They had to do that to protect them. Um, but, yeah, a lot of it is is what position do you need? What what are you looking for? What, you know, where are you trying to cover? Is, yeah. you know, are you trying to – do you need a shortstop? Do you need an outfielder? Yeah. Um, are you just looking for a bat? Uh, you know, so it all depends on that. Bruhan's a nice-looking bat, isn't he? That guy's been oh yeah, oh, absolutely he is. And and by the way, and and, and you know, and Wander Franco is the you know the best prospect in the race system, maybe the best prospect in baseball, no question about it. But the best shortstop in the race system is Taylor Walls. Mm-hmm. He is a plus plus defender, right? And he's got some pop in the bat too. So, I mean, Franco, there's a thought that Franco could play second or third, right? I, I, he's going to I, – I think at the big league level, he will end up moving to second or third. Mm-hmm. You know, now you've got like Padlow who can play third. You've got Bruhan at second, you know. So it's, it's sort it's kind of the Rays' way, right? Oh, I mean, they, yeah. they have guys that play a lot of positions, mm-hmm. I mean. But, I mean, you know, if you're looking defensively, Adamas and Taylor Walls are much better defensively than Wander Franco at shortstop. Yeah. Um, you know, but – you know they like to move guys around. I mean, you know, and will Wander move around? I I, I don't see shortstop as being his long term play in the big leagues. No. Yeah, probably second base. Yeah, second or third, depending on what need it is. I mean, you know. Yeah. You know, is Brendan is Brendan Lau still your second baseman, or is it Bruhans up, or do you need a third base? I mean, you know, it might just depend on where you need him. You know, or he, I, might, he might play multiple positions. I'm I'm constantly, you know, the one thing I think the Rays have done, and they look for these guys, and they find them, and 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 they 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 work at it. You know, I don't think people realize how much they work on their defense. And um, you see, I see Kevin Cash out there in spring training, and and you know, just rifling balls at guys at different positions. Um, but people don't realize. I don't think you realize unless you played the game a little bit that how different it is to play on one side of the infield, the left side versus the right side. It's just different, man. Like, you know, you grow up, you're in Little League, you play shortstop your whole life, you get used to making that throw, and then all of a sudden guys can run down to first base in three-point something, you know. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden uh, I got to get rid of this and I got to get rid of it right away, and I better have a cannon, right, because these guys can fly as you move up the ladder, right. All of a sudden guys can really run. And so then that's how you go from shortstop maybe to second because it throws maybe a little closer, a little – but the angle of the ball – um, uh, just your whole uh, viewpoint of the game changes. Um, late in my career, they tried, they, they moved me to third for a little bit. And I'm telling you, trying to pick up the first baseman from over there and throw across the diamond was just, it, your eyes are just different. Like, and, and I know these guys now kind of play everywhere, but, but I think they develop them that way, right? But what Joey Wendell does, for example, like it's not easy. Like he plays a really good third base. You can play him at short. He's pretty reliable. I think he's a really good second baseman. I mean, that's just not natural for guys to be able to do that. I'm just telling you, it's so hard. Uh, and the Rays seem to have and – then, and then to play the outfield. You know, like I played the outfield one year in high school, and that was different. You know, so 
uh, there's just an, what the Rays do with with developing their guys at different positions and the, the amount of emphasis they put on defense. I think is remarkable. Just to think, you go, well, you know, Wander could come up here. He could play second. He could play short. He could play third. Not an easy thing to do. Not at the big league level. Not when you need that consistency. So. Good for them to have that much flexibility in their infield and their outfield. Well, and here's really another sad. thing, too, about some of these prospects, from Franco to Vidal Brujan to Taylor Walls. They're all switch hitters. The Rays have yeah, a lot more switch hitters coming up in their system than Mejia is the only sh- uh, switch hitter they have on the roster right now. But a lot, that, of their, a lot of their young guys in AAA and below, they have a lot more switch hitters than they've had in the past. And, and that dude. just adds to that versatility that the Rays are always looking for. And listen – that's even crazier. Okay, what I just said, forget about it. Like swinging the bat with a – I mean, that's like saying, you know what, today I'm going to write left-handed. I mean, really. Like, you know, I'm, I'm going to do everything left-handed. It's not it's, – it's, I marvel at – and good for them. Maybe they started at a young age and they just, you know, doesn't see it's – a, it's a hell of a weapon, right? You, you don't have to platoon. You're going to turn around and hit the other way. Remarkable guys that switch hit. Just even, even – even, I mean, no wonder they're the top – prospects in baseball right they're not just top prospects for the rays but in all of baseball they can do all those things all right craig in vegas asks with oakland now given the okay to move and they mentioned montreal as a potential site does that show Stu has a smoke screen going on with us would the city of tampa not go after oakland they have a site for a new park that Stu didn't want to pay for yeah i don't i don't know you know i think the best chance for baseball in tampa bay is to keep the rays rather than you know go ahead and move on to the next team that wants to use you for leverage I, well yeah baseball has to approve any move and they're not going to yeah, approve oakland to move to tampa yeah i mean you know you that's you're trading one problem for another it's it's really not a solution uh apparently somebody thinks that montreal might be and that's interesting because look uh there are good markets and then there are not so good markets. And what I mean by that is like, we can all just kind of like say, well, it'd be, you know, I think Charlotte would, would want a baseball team. I think Las Vegas would, but you know, it's not about, uh, you know, good city, nice weather. Um, they got a sports team. Maybe they will want, I mean, you have to find way to ways to build these stadiums. Right. But the old bird in hand type thing, like I, and I go back to this, it, it I'll never forget it. In fact, in uh, nineteen, what nineteen ninety five, the the Glazers bought the Bucks from the Culver House Trust, and Rich McKay went from selling the team to uh, as a trustee to being the general manager of the Bucks, or you know, and and uh, team president or whatever. And and so he was sort of helping the Glazers try to secure a stadium, and and, and they they had leverage and their leverage was Baltimore. The city of Baltimore had decided they wanted football back. They the Colts had left many, many years before and, and they had had approved the construction of a new stadium that they were prepared to build if a team would commit to moving there. And, um, that absolutely was the place that the Glazers were, you know, going to pull the ripcord if they couldn't get a deal in Tampa. And it was coming down to the wire. And I'll never forget the day that out of nowhere or so it seemed, Art Modell moves an iconic, you know, franchise like the Cleveland Browns that no one could have imagined that Art Modell would then move to Baltimore and take the Browns out of Cleveland. I mean, it was sacrilege. It was it was it was hard to fathom. But he had a bad stadium deal. They wouldn't build him one. They built one for the Indians. And and when he took that deal, um, there were some really tough conversations, you know, over there. 
at one buck place at the time and, and, and Rich McKay and others thought maybe they were done because they had, uh, you know, they had reason to believe that Baltimore was going to be their escape hatch. And when that was removed, it was a problem. And I think it helped in a way, um, you know, the Glazers, I mean, they still got a honey deal, I think, in my opinion, but I think it, I think it galvanized sort of their focus on Tampa even more. Uh, they got the half, half cent sales tax and, you know, we, we all know the story, but my point, my, my larger point is that Montreal, if it, if it, becomes a thing where where the Oakland A's believe that that is a market ready to build a stadium, ready to have baseball again, and we're going to go there first. And if they do, that takes away a pretty good chunk of uh, you know of leverage away from Stu Sternberg with this two city idea, you know, because it's Montreal is the one that he's looking at. So, you know, the A's and the Rays are sort of exactly in the same place. The A's may be a little further down the down the pike as far as bringing the moving vans up. But because baseball has basically said, yeah, you can't make it work there. Um, we're not quite there yet with Tampa. But if you see Montreal become an option for the A's, that, that actually could be really good in some ways or bad. But it could be probably, you know, would remove some leverage for Stuart Sternberg, I think. Well, and he asked about, you know, why wouldn't – Tampa go after Oakland. Well, Oakland's moving because they don't want to pay for the stadium in downtown Oakland either. They want the city to pay for it. Exactly. And right now, there's not a huge appetite to publicly fund stadiums. Mm-hmm. This isn't 20 years ago when that was the norm. And Yeah, that's how you, you know, got a baseball owners team. Owners yeah. like the Glazers and many other cities got sweetheart deals where not only they have a stadium, but they get all the they get revenues off every show that comes by and everything that's done there. And, and, yeah. and that appetite's just not there with public funding at this time. I mean, you know, St. Petersburg built Tropicana, which was in the Thunderdome or whatever they called it. And when they did, they got major league stadiums built in Chicago, new, uh, you know, the the U.S. Bank Field or whatever it's called uh, in on the south side, uh, New Comiskey, if you will. They've got stadiums built in San Francisco and one in Seattle because all those teams were flirting with and and or ready to leverage and move to St. Petersburg because there was a tangible stadium either built or on its way to being built at the time that, that St. Petersburg was trying to lure those teams, you know, and you just don't see, you know, communities going all in and saying, yeah, we'll build it. Who wants to come here first? You know, it just, it's not a, it's not a chicken or the egg type thing. It's like, no, you commit and let's, you know, does, does this community have the appetite to build them? But you're right. Um, I think it's a much harder deal today for franchises to move. And I know, you know, in, in football, we've seen it with, you know, the Rams going back to L.A. with the Chargers moving up from San Diego to L.A. Yeah, I'm but the, but, but, but Stan Kroenke's basically paying for that stadium himself. Well, Kroenke paid a lot of it, but the NFL yeah. did, too. Yeah. The NFL right. wanted that number yes. two market back yes. in their back in their uh, uh, their sites. But it they, wasn't they, publicly funded. It was not. And, and that's that's the biggest key. It was a combination of the NFL and Kroenke. Um and to some degree, I guess Los Angeles having a, a, a place, real estate that they could purchase, but, um, but yeah, now it, it's it's a different deal, um, but much more. I don't know much. I think I think it's a much easier move in football sometimes than it is than it is in baseball. So, yeah, Oakland's not Oakland's not coming to Tampa Bay. I mean, let's. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. All right. Bemuse sports fan uh, had another question. Asked, will new college compensation rules hurt USF? Will it help Florida? I worry these rules will widen the gap between Power 5 and non-Power 5 schools. I hadn't thought about it in those terms. I mean, I, I, I think that uh, if you're not a Power 5 conference, you know, more and more you're, you're going to have very little to nothing to say uh, in terms of your ability to, to compete for athletes, um, in, you know, in, in, in power uh, being looked at by power five schools. I mean, there's, there's going to be a system and there is to some degree now the haves and the haves not. I mean, do we, do we really believe uh, that an American athletic team can run off enough quality wins against non American athletic conference teams to find themselves in an NCAA football championship? I don't, I don't think that's possible. It's it's just like Um, the pros. I mean, you know, a lot of athletes go to New York or L.A. or whatever the, the sure. hottest team, Chicago, because they're bigger markets and bigger bases to get endorsement deals. Um, yeah, off-field stuff, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's essentially what we're talking about with some of these college compensation rules is, you know, I can capitalize off my name. Well, if I'm at Alabama or Clemson or Ohio State, am yeah. I going to be able to capitalize on my name more than if I'm at USF or UCF? It's not even or, close. It's not even close. Yeah, I mean, you know? the amount of I mean, time on television and the amount of time that your name is how many How many jerseys about. in the bookstore are they selling at Alabama, the quarterback, versus whoever the USF quarterback is? I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you can't even fill a stadium at Raymond James or someplace else with fans, much less those that are going to buy merchandise with your name on it or your likeness. So... Yeah, of course, of course, it's going to affect it, and, it's, and w- even within conferences, you know, it's going to affect it. Uh, like I said, the Alabamas, the uh, maybe the Auburns, the Floridas, oh. they'll do well. Winning is, is going to be very important for players. I mean, yeah, as a recruit, if you want to capitalize off your name, I, I, and I'm just kind of going off the top of my head because I hadn't thought thought a lot about it like you, but do I want to go to a program that's rebuilding that may never win? A lot while I'm there, or do I want to go to an established program where, you know, I, I have a better shot at being on television more because the team wins more. Now, granted, you may have more competition at those places too, so you've got to win the job, but that all could factor into things. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right. I think all of that is part of it, and for that reason, um, yeah, it's going to change college athletics in general. Um, and it, and it's time. Look, I I don't have this. Everybody's like, well, that's going to hurt this, and it's going, yeah, yeah, it will, it will. You know what? Life isn't fair. I mean, that's all I can tell you is that um, it's it's long past due, in my opinion, that everybody gets a piece of the pie except the actual players. And you know this 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 nonsense about but they're getting scholarships, and that's how they get paid. Yeah, they're earning those scholarships, folks. You mm-hmm. know. Well, that's, they're, they're part, that's ha- part of their compensation plan. But it's just part of it. The amount of you, money that those programs oh. are pulling in, the Alabamas, the Texases, the USC's, the amount of money they pull in. $150 million a year for some of those programs. And all you got to do is look at what, what, is, what do the boosters have to scrape up to buy out contracts of college football coaches, to have them not coach. Here's $25 million go away, right? 
And, and but you're going to tell me there's not enough money. It's going to ruin ath- amateur athletics. It's not amateur athletics. I mean, this is they're making when you're making millions of dollars off of off of performances by athletes, and they're the only ones not getting compensated. That's a problem. And the, the I think the U.S. Supreme Court is going to rule it. I think I think where it's going to change the landscape of of uh, amateur athletics if we want to c- c- consider it that it's not really. I mean, you're asking guys, they're student athletes, you know, when whenever it's convenient. But hey, if you play basketball at Duke, all right, try making all your final exams and your classes, even though you're playing, you know, three games a week on national TV and two of those are on the road. I mean, come on, you know, who are we kidding here? I mean, these guys are there for a year and then going to the NBA, and we want to call them amateurs. Um, I think they should get all they can get. I've always felt that way. I used to have arguments with Tom Jones, who's finally come around to the dark side with me seeing it that way. But, um, yes, the, 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 the non-Power 5 programs may have to form their own leagues. I, uh, whatever they got to do, there, there's not going to be a shortage of guys wanting to play at their schools. They just won't be the elite guys. And, yes, it'll, it'll be even more um, – you know, of an advantage for the Alabamas. And, you know, I I mean, how do you feel for if you're old Miss, right, and you're trying to compete within the SEC against all those teams that are able to to uh, uh, to pay, you know, get get players compensation or more compensation because their programs are winning. It's going to change going to change sports as we know it. But I, I still think that there – I will not ever buy the argument that, you know, um, you just – how are you going to do it? You can't figure it out. You know, there's not enough money in there. I don't, I don't buy any of that. So – I would say USF USF is already um, not able to compete for those athletes. I mean, look, this is it's as simple as this. What these programs do, do they give money to the general education fund? I don't know how much, but I do know what they do do. What they do do, and I said do do, they they go ahead and build Taj Mahals of athletic uh, facilities, and they and they keep upgrading and they tear them down and upgrade them again. You know. Uh, they have the assistant athletic director to the assistant athletic directors of, you know, name the sport. Um, they, they become this bureaucratic, all-enveloping, uh, look at our budget. We need, we need all 148 of the $150 million because that's what it costs us to put on a good show at Ohio State. You know, like, I mean, you know, there, there's plenty of money in the system. And yes, it's going to go to the athletes. And like I said, it, it's probably about time. All right, Joe asks, how likely is it between now and the start of the season that the Buccaneers will add any well-known free agents for depth? I don't know. We have much room, but maybe some old guy still wants a ring. I think I'll, I think their team is pretty set. I mean, um, I was thinking about this the other day. You know, if you've got twenty-two starters, and those are just the starters coming back, right? We know all the free agents that they resign and and, and or uh, use franchise tags on guys like Godwin, but then you add the guys that were already under contract. You know, that are that are depth, right? Whether it's O.J. Howard or Cameron Braid. I mean, you got a lot of guys that aren't counted among those twenty-two starters. <laughs> um, there's just not a lot of roster spots on this team. And and the one thing that Jason Light has to do, um, while while trying to uh, maximize this window with Tom Brady, you want to go for as many Lombardis as you can stuff inside, you know, the facility. But by the same token, you still you still want young players. You know, you want to draft and develop. Now, when you talk about bargains and guys, yes, they're always looking for help. And I mean, and injuries are usually the big determiner of that. Um, you know, and it will always be that way. Uh, 
uh, the the defensive tackle they traded for last year from the Jets, Stephen McClendon, and you think you know they re-signed him, um, but all all McClendon did was that when Vita Vea went down, he helped solidify that rotation uh, at defensive tackle. He's a veteran guy, doesn't have a lot left in the tank, um, not a big salary cap hit, but he absolutely made a difference for them. Uh, their ability to you know to kind of hold the fort in the run game. Um, so that they could be a successful defense, and and those kind of guys, you you know, you'll see them pop up after the draft um, when they get to mini camps. The last cut in August, there might be one or two of those guys, but for the most part, I mean, I think within four or five or six spots, I could probably sit down mm-hmm. and, and write you the entire roster of the Bucks right now. I don't, unless it's just a bargain basement to replace an injured player, I don't see them going after many free agents at this point. I think they already signed their well-known free agent. It was Giovanni Bernard. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. That was their big acquisition. I mean, that, you know, outside of re-signing everybody else, that's their big acquisition at a a position of need. Yes. A running back who could catch the ball. Absolutely. And he, he, you know, you think, well, how did the Bucs get better? That's one tangible way. Um, they had 14 drops with their running backs last year, at least, and it's not an official stat, but between Leonard Fournette and Rojo, and now you have somebody that, you know, Brady has always operated with a high volume of completions because, again, you know, vertical offense, um, don't want to hold the ball too long. Uh, you can check this ball down on third down, and, and if the guy's able to make some yards after the catch run routes, you know, he did it with James White. And won a Super Bowl. Um, you know, this is Brady's sort of bread and butter, and and that's how the Bucks' offense will be better. So, yeah, I, I would agree with you. That was their big um, free agent acquisition. Uh, even though he's an older player, and they didn't pay him a ton of money, but he absolutely is a difference maker. All right, Ellis asked, "How do the early parts of this reigning champion Bucks season compare to the same parts of the o two o three season?" I'm going to assume that that what you mean by like at this same juncture, you know, what is what is the general feeling about what they have done and their ability to repeat? Um, and I thought they would had a really good chance, really good chance. If I go back and look at it, I really think that 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 team that the Bucks had that won in 02 probably should have won two, maybe even three Super Bowls. I mean, that defense was still that good, had a little bit left in the tank. They they probably were actually at their peak in in '99. Uh, season 2000 playoffs when they almost took the greatest show to turf and beat them six to five but lost 11 to six I mean that defense was one of the greatest I've ever seen Um, they they certainly needed to get better on offense and did Um, you know that year every I've talked to Brad Johnson about this you know everybody came back uh, for the most part I don't know if it was 22 starters and that sort of thing but they had Jurevicious they had Keyshawn Johnson they had McCardell they had Brad Johnson they had Michael Pittman uh, the defense was the defense for the most part. And yet um, the difference was, uh, even though Brad says, it depends on who you talk to, Brad says, well, we had a really good training camp, a really good off season. They sent them to Japan for an extra uh, uh, preseason game. It was in the American Bowl Series. They played in Tokyo. I think they played the Jets. Uh, so that was a little bit of a travel thing, you know, before the start of the regular season. They went on Monday night. The first game was not at home. We talked about that. They beat the Eagles and open Lincoln financial field with 17 to nothing win. Jervis just tipping the ball to himself and all this. Um, and then some, some cataclysmic losses, right. And injuries as well. 10 to nine, I think to uh, Carolina in week two, um, the comeback, uh, when they righted the ship on Monday night football, when Dungy came here, I think they were up by 24 in the fourth quarter and lost. So there were some horrific, horrific losses, but what they will tell you, or some of the guys I've talked to will say is that, you know what? We, 
as soon as we won a Super Bowl, everybody had a radio show. Everybody wanted to get this or that. Everybody wanted to get paid. And it became less about the team and more about what's in this for me. How do I... How do I maximize this? How do I get more catches? How do I get more money? I should be a bigger part of the offense. Um, you know, this sort of thing. And and they didn't handle it well. I mean, Derek Brooks and Sap had conversations about this. Like, hey, man, we're not, you know, we're the hunted now. We've, we've never been the hunted. You know, we were always the underdogs. We, you know, this is not a spot that we're, we're comfortable being in. And they just didn't have any answers for that. They got everybody's best shot. Uh, the focus might not have been there when the regular season started. Then the injuries started to occur, and the wheels fell off. Now, I'm here to tell you, when injuries happen, the wheels do fall off. You know, this is an attrition league. There's a reason why everybody says, well, it's next man up. Yeah, but the next man isn't as good as the guy that's in front of him. That's football, right? That's that's any sport. Like, you have starters for a reason because they're your best players. Now, you know, there might be some positions, tight end and some others, where you're like, well, we have such good depth that it's not a big drop-off maybe between 2 and 2A. Two um, but your starters are your starters for a reason. So if there's injuries, all bets are off. But I think the difference is the mentality of this football team, and that mentality begins and ends with Tom Brady. You know, Tom Brady is not going to allow them, um, you know, to think that they're good this year. Yeah, they won it last year, and he's the last guy to repeat, so he knows what it's like to repeat, how to go back down to the mountain and start over again. Um, and so I, I think that – you know, this team had a feeling that they were just beginning to to hit their stride when the season ended, as scary as that might be to some teams. Um, but I think they feel like there is more out there, and they're and they know that Brady Brady's window is very small. I mean, you know, goodness gracious, he's going to be forty four years old, and as great as he looks and 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 plays, I mean, there's going to come a day where either you know he can't do it or his wife says. I won't let you do it. I mean, something's going to happen where this guy's going to stop playing. So whether it's this year, next year, or whatever, um, that window is small. So there's an urgency, I think, that's heightened. And just the fact that, you know, Brady will not allow the culture of this team to slide backwards. He's like Peyton Manning that way. He's going to keep pushing, keep pushing, and they're going to be back in the mix and back in the playoffs and have a chance to at least make a run at a second Super Bowl. And I don't I don't think that the Bucks, uh, who at that time had gone – I don't know, uh, you know, almost 18 years without a playoff appearance and then, you know, uh, you know, beat the Lions at home one year and, you know, had a couple seasons end in Philadelphia. They really, you know, they really weren't equipped to, you know, to defend that title from from just a preparation and mental standpoint. I think it was more mental than anything. And then the injuries hit. Um, So they didn't handle the adversity. I think this team will. So from that standpoint, to me, I would feel much better about the Bucks now repeating than I did in 2 All right, Les asks, Rick, do you find it strange that we have heard very little news about Tiger Woods' accident and the severity of his injuries? I would think if it were good news, it would be all over the media. Do you think we'll ever see Tiger play golf at a high level again? First of all, Tiger. the reason you haven't heard anything about Tiger Woods is because Tiger Woods isn't going to let you hear anything about Tiger Woods. Um I know Bob Herrig, we've had him on this show. You know, he was a uh, colleague of mine at the Tempe Times for years and years. We sat next to each other, great ESPN golf writer uh, who knows Tiger very, very well. And, you know, n- that information doesn't just tumble out. Like, like the access to Tiger is, is what he will allow these days. I mean, he's that, 
he's the Michael Jordan-esque type star. You know, I don't know that there's many athletes that are in that orbit, okay? Um, and so... Tom Brady kind of is. Tom Brady is to something. Yeah, I think so. I mean, here, okay, here's here's an example. Different different situation, right? Tiger, very public accident, could have died. What do we know? Compound fractures. Uh, police said they didn't do any tox- toxicology. They didn't do a blood test. They thought he was just speeding. Yaddy, yaddy. Uh, I think we I don't know if we've seen a picture. If you do, it's something that Tiger will release. A couple of golfers have visited him. Um, we know it was a pretty bad injury. So you're only going to know what Tiger is going to let you know. I mean, so no, I'm not, not surprised we haven't heard anything because that's, that's the orbit that he's in. Um, you know, when, when him and Tom Brady played golf, you know, a year ago when the world was shut down and they had Phil Mickelson and, um, and Peyton Manning, they wouldn't even, I mean, Tiger's people, even though it was, it was partly sanctioned by the PGA, but Tiger's people didn't want any media there, period. They had other people around on golf carts, but they, they literally controlled everything. They didn't have press conferences or Zoom calls. Like, you do what Tiger wants to do and only what Tiger wants to do. So he's going to control the message unless there's a public um, situation where there's, you know, like some of the traffic stops that he's had that are embarrassing in the past or something like this where you can get, you know, um, information other ways. But – on this one, I think it's pretty much an open and shut case. It seems to be, at least as far as the LA County, um, you know, authorities are concerned. And uh, we're not, you know, obviously the medical staff stuff is all is all protected by HIPAA, et cetera. So I and I have no idea. I mean, I think you know, just based on his age and uh, his back was already a major issue. He couldn't play at a lot of tournaments. He was just mostly focusing on majors. Not necessarily. I mean, we know he won the Masters, and that that might be the one golf tournament he could win um, every year uh, if he was still playing. But I wouldn't put any limitations on him just because he's Tiger Woods and he's amazing, and he probably shouldn't be shouldn't have been playing before this accident. But now that he has had it, I think his goal is probably just to be able to, you know, thankfully save his leg, uh, be able to kick the soccer ball around or caddy for Charlie or whatever whatever his future is with his kids. It's his focus is not going to be on golf, even though, you know, he loves the game and, and I'm sure would want to play it as long as he can. But I think he looks at what he was able to do after five back surgeries and winning it, winning the Masters. I don't know how you top that, right? The bear hug with his children and all of that. Um, that would have been a nice walk off moment. Uh, if if it turns out that that's the last major he wins, I think he'll be okay with it. You know, I mean, I think he's probably going to be ready for the next chapter of his life. Nothing gives you perspective like almost dying, you know, and, and if you looked at that accident, he's very, very fortunate, you know, that we didn't lose another iconic athlete uh, like Kobe Bryant or somebody in a tragic uh, accident like that. So, um, yeah, I uh, will he play golf again? I would never say no. Winning, that might be harder, um, but I'm not surprised we haven't heard much because, you know, Tiger will control the message. If he starts hitting golf balls <laughs> and he wants to come out and play, he'll tell you when that's going to occur, but not before. And and right now I think his focus has to be just on, you know, getting healthy. That was, that was a gruesome injury. That was an Alex Smith-like type injury, right? Yep. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I'm – not, I'm not surprised by it. All right, we've got some questions from John and Rooting for UF we'll get to later this week. I think you'll like those questions. Uh, cool. So we'll get to them later this week. We'll just end on this real quick. 
Um, this is just breaking as we're recording this on Monday afternoon, but Bob Baffert has been suspended from entering the Belmont Stakes in two weeks. What? So I don't have any details, but just we were talking about uh, why Medina Spirit had a long face last week um, going into the Preakness Stakes, so, but he's been suspended from entering the Belmont Stakes. So I don't know the details well, that, yet. Now, when breaking. you say Baffert or Baffert's horses, I mean, in Baffert... Uh... Well, it would presumably be Baffert's horses. I mean, if he's suspended yeah. from entering, I mean, he doesn't race. so it's... <laughs> Well, as far as we know... Man against horse is pretty exciting. I mean, hey, Chris Collinsworth it. tried that once. It didn't work too well. So. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, don't count it out. But, yeah, well, we, we talked about how that, that poor horse was, uh, was, was pretty humiliated going into, uh, going into the Preakness. So, um, not surprised. But we'll, we'll jump on that one uh, on our next podcast, along with the rest of your questions. Good questions. Yeah. We went a little long. Uh, we've got Lightning in, in Game 2 tonight. At Florida, see if they can take a 2-0 lead and bring it back home to Emily Arita. That would be a huge, uh, huge advantage for them. But they've already uh, gotten home ice back with the win they had the other night. So uh, got that on tap. Probably have uh, Tom Jones, I think, one night this week, maybe. Yeah, we're working on that uh, probably for Thursday show is our hope. So Yeah, and a couple of hockey games to boot. The Rays are in uh, Baltimore to play the Orioles mm-hmm. starting tonight. So we'll follow that as well. And the... The Bucks are going to have some OTAs coming up here on May 25th. We'll see if anybody bothers to the show. They're in phase two, I believe, of their off-season workout program. Tom Brady supposed to start throwing. If we if we run him down, we'll let you know uh, how he looks. So, lots uh, coming up on Sports Day Tampa Bay. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your questions. For Steve Burstyn, I'm Rick Stroud, of the Tampa Bay Times. Have a great day, everybody. 